This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It was the site of one of Colorado's darkest chapters, but for the longest time, the only thing you'd notice about Camp Amache was the wind. There were very few signs that thousands of Japanese Americans were kept here against their will during World War II, simply because they looked like the enemy. Slowly but surely, they've been trying to recreate Amache in southeastern Colorado so that the history isn't forgotten. And just yesterday, they moved an old shed that once served as a recreation hall back to the site. This will be the fourth structure now, I believe, three of which were reconstructed. So this will be the first uh, original structure in its entirety to return to the site. These structures are one way to experience Amache. Another is through the stories of 88-year-old Bob Fuchigami. He's going to tell us about the three and a half years he spent without his freedom. He was just 11 when his family was forced to leave their ranch in central California and report to an assembly center. Can you help with that? Yeah. Here. Let me, uh... Pulling out a large binder filled with photos and documents about Amache, Fujigami shows me a copy of an official order. It forced him, his family, and anyone of Japanese descent to, quote, be evacuated from the West Coast following the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. So what was it like the day that you had to leave your home? These kinds of orders. Uh, it says Civilian Exclusion yeah, Order Number 5. Yeah, right, exclusion. This happens to be one of the people in San Francisco, but we had one for Sutter County where we lived. And it's yeah. almost like you'd post that on a, on a wall or yeah, something. Yeah, they put them on the you know, telephone poles and things like that. But they told us... What we needed to do, they, they gave us uh, well, it was about six days to get rid of everything. And they said, you must do this. And it lists things. It says you must... Only what you could carry. Yeah. Extra but, clothes, toiletries, and you carry that with you to this, this center. Yeah, to the train station. Fuchigami left his home with almost nothing. But the one thing he couldn't leave behind... It was a bag of marbles. I mean, what else can you carry? Uh, maybe a baseball mitt and the rest of the clothing. Because you don't know how long you're going to be there, you know, whether they'll have any stores or anything where you can buy anything. They gathered in their own churches and schools, and the Japanese themselves cheerfully handled the enormous paperwork involved in the migration. Government agencies helped in a hundred ways. They helped the evacuees find tenants for their farms. They helped businessmen lease, sell, or store their property. This aid was financed by the government, but quick disposal of property often involved financial sacrifice for the evacuees. This propaganda film produced by the U.S. military painted a rosy picture of the so-called Japanese relocation, but the reality was very different. The Fuchigami family made a hasty deal with a local high school teacher to watch over their farm, and they were forced to include a very attractive option to buy. What are you going to do in five days? You've got a ranch with the farm equipment, and you know, you've got trucks and cars. And he made so much money the first year, he bought it. He exercises the arrangement. And so we lost every. I mean... Yeah, we lost everything. 
Fuchigami spent four months at the California Assembly Center before boarding a train, but his parents and seven siblings had no idea where it was headed. You have to be shuttered the windows, you know, the blinds type of thing. They were closed. Yeah, well, and they had guards on there on the on the train, and they would enforce that. I mean, uh, I peeked out one time anyway. <laughs> I think I looked out another time. It was in Barstow, and uh, the rest of the time, I mean, they they kept the things closed. I guess to whoever was on the other trains heading the other direction wouldn't see who was in there. In the trains, they, they didn't want the, the public to know what they were doing to us. And because they had so little to go on, every time the train stopped, they held their breath. They let us off the train, and, you know, it was in the middle of the desert somewhere in Arizona, I think it was. It was almost like a potty break. We didn't know why they stopped, but some people thought they were going to get shot, you know. They didn't know why we were stopped out there. The only people with the guns were the armed guards. More than 7,500 Japanese Americans were detained at Amache, living on one square mile surrounded by barbed wire fences and guard towers manned by military police. They were housed in 29 blocks with around 250 people per block. When Fuchigami arrived, his family's small room was bare with only cots, Nothing like home. The only thing uh, they had was uh, uh, one light bulb hanging down. They had, uh, they had a little stove in the corner. The floor was one, one layer of brick on the sand. You know, you lift up the brick and there, you know, it's, it's a sandy soil. And because we didn't have any water in the, in the, in the rooms, you had to come and use the... Uh, the latrine, and when they had the latrines, they just had these stools, and there was no partition walls or anything. And the women were, were really appalled and just under a great deal of distress because of that kind of a situation. They finally convinced the management to put in some partitions, half partitions. Despite the conditions, they tried to have a normal life. They formed social clubs and sports leagues, and there were stores and even a newspaper. The government did provide some education, but for Fuchigami... I joined the Boy Scouts. What do you do inside of a camp? You, we ended up doing a lot of marching, learning how to march you know, back and forth. Signs of their incarceration were all around. They have these searchlights on the guard towers, and at night, you know, they just, they have random searches. They see somebody, they shine it on you, and they follow you. You just go to the bathroom. You just follow you to the bathroom. You know? The reason they chose Amachi was it's remote, and if you try to escape, where the heck would you go? And then because. We looked like the enemy, although we weren't the enemy. We all knew, we, you know, we, we hadn't done anything, but the public didn't know. And once we put it into the, into the camps, they said, oh, they, they must have really done something wrong and be put in something like that. And so the public was really misguided, you know. 
Families detained at Amache longed for things they left behind, like family heirlooms. And eventually the government allowed in limited shipments, and Fujigami's mother jumped at the chance. Mom had the trunk from uh, when she came from Japan, and she had put in her valuables, you know, kimonos and stuff. And Mom said she wanted to have some of her things from the trunk. And so we, we had it shipped to us, and when it arrived, it had been broken into, and contents were gone, and, uh, you know, I think that really broke her heart, and she had a stroke in the camp, and uh, she did recover a little bit, but took a long time. Eventually, the government's detention order was lifted, and Japanese Americans were allowed to return home. However, some faced violence, hostility, and burned or looted homes. The final small group remaining at Amache left in October of 1945, with only $25 in their pockets and a one-way train ticket home. At age 15, three and a half years behind barbed wire fences and imposing guard towers, Fuchigami and his family left Amache. I'm sure I've got something. Today, Fuchigami lives at a Lakewood retirement community with his wife, Sally. Their small apartment is lined with bookshelves full of binders on Amache and other incarceration sites around the U.S. Pulling one of the binders from the shelf, Fuchigami shows me his family photos taken after the war. Oh, look at that. That's when I was a kid. Yeah. These are my father and mother, and... One of them, an official Navy photo, and a photo of the ship he served on during the Korean War, serving a country that had in so many ways taken much of his childhood. The ship I sailed on. Oh, yeah. This is the ship I sailed on. It says so. The Nelson M. Walker. Yeah. Yeah. Fuchigami now gives talks on his time at Amache, and he remembers a question that came from a young black soldier who'd served in the military after 9-11. He said, why in the world, why would you... Join the Navy after the way they treated you and all that. And I, I said, that's a really good question. This is the only country I have. I mean, it's, it's my country. You know, it's just like it's your country, you know. Why would you go off and join the military after the way the you know, blacks have been treated? People of color have all been treated badly whether you're talking about Indians or blacks or Mexican or Japanese or Chinese or whatever, if you're not white, you get treated differently at different times. Sitting in his living room with a book he'd love to publish someday, Fuchigami says the story of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II is as important as ever. There's been a lot of interest now because... People from Iran or Muslims or, you know, we look at that and we say, hey, that's what they did to us. They target certain populations. So we've we've tried to say, hey, you can't do that to them. You did that to us, but now we know better. Bob Fuchigami of Lakewood, speaking about his time at Camp Amache in southeastern Colorado outside Grenada. Tomorrow, survivors and friends will gather for an annual pilgrimage and memorial there. 
Dignitaries, including Republican Senator Cory Gardner, are expected to attend. Gardner and fellow Colorado Senator Democrat Michael Bennett have just introduced legislation to explore including Amache in the national park system. And we'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When New Horizons soared past Pluto in 2015, the spacecraft revealed an unseen world, mountains, polar caps, and a heart-shaped patch that is now the dwarf planet's signature. But it almost didn't happen. New Horizons run out of Boulder, Colorado, was a mission many thought was impossible. The inside story is now chronicled in a book, Chasing New Horizons, by mission director Alan Stern and planetary scientist David Grinspoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. Good morning. Alan, the book opens on the 4th of July, 2015. New Horizons is traveling 36,000 miles an hour and will reach Pluto in just 10 days. And you get a phone call. What did they say? Wow. You know, 4th of July is a day for fireworks, but this is not what I was expecting. (laughs) Uh, My phone rang. Uh, It was a Saturday. Uh, It was a day off for most people on the team. And it was uh, our project manager who simply said, Alan, we've lost contact with a spacecraft. That's a sentence one should never hear in a space flight at any point. It's very grave. What did you do? How how did that turn out? Well, we we immediately assembled the team in mission control. So people were streaming in in their bathing suits and flip-flops and uh, tank tops. (laughs) That's right, the 4th of July uh, week, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, It was pretty surreal looking. You know, this is sort of the disaster on Apollo 13, but it's your real life. And uh, in fact, we were only three days, 78 hours from beginning the flyby. So time was really critical. Fortunately, we reestablished communication with the spacecraft pretty quickly in about 90 minutes. And as Chasing New Horizons describes, what we discovered then was almost just as bad. And that was that then in switching to the backup computer, all of the five flyby files on the computer had been erased all of the plans that had been put up over a period of several months and verified that they were there were gone. And we were faced with having to recreate that in less than three days. And, and Alan, we, I want to step back a little bit because this was hardly the first time something went wrong. I mean, it took nearly two decades just to get New Horizons launched. And a lot of people thought it just couldn't be done. What was so hard about reaching Pluto? Well, uh Read the book. But to be honest <laughs> with you, uh, the flight across the solar system was pretty uneventful, except for this uh, existential threat on uh, the 4th of July, you know, just before the flyby began. But uh, it, it was a very troubled and difficult birth to get this mission to happen. And there was a lot of intrigue. There were good guys and bad guys. Uh, there was a David and Goliath competition. Uh, they were steps forward and steps backwards. It it was really quite a saga. And uh, in the end, uh, people who really had a dream to explore the farthest worlds in the history of humankind, many of them from Boulder, uh, succeeded and uh, did something very special, a little bit larger than life and certainly historic. 
And, and I, I know there's there was a, a, a real reason that, you know, somebody with Jupiter being in a certain location and you had to hit this point at this exact moment or else the whole thing was <laughs> was mood. I mean, it's it's more than just budgets and NASA. It's it's real science, right? It's celestial mechanics. It's science. Uh, but it's also a very human story with uh, uh, and, you know, the book that uh, uh, David has written uh, weaves the voices of a couple dozen people who live this life. Uh, into the narrative. And so you hear first-person accounts from NASA administrators and from scientists on the team, some CU professors, engineers and flight controllers. It's it's a riveting tale. It's, it's, it's really quite a page-turner. And David, this is a book about New Horizons before it was, quote, famous, before we saw all those amazing pictures of Pluto. It spans 26 years. As an author, how did you manage to create dramatic pacing? Well... It really is an adventure story, and it's a story I've followed for a long time. You know, I, I moved to Boulder in, in 1990 and met Alan and some of the other protagonists in the story right around that time when they were just starting to, you know, talk about this dream they had of sending a mission to Pluto. They didn't really have a full-blown plan. They had an idea that we needed to keep going and explore beyond uh, Neptune, which was the farthest planet explored at that time. So I've been following this for a long time and, and moved by the story and seeing the heartache and, and the moments of triumph and, and sort of the, the struggle and, and this young group of uh, scientists, uh, you know, based in Boulder and then expanding around the country, um, as they figured out how it worked and and really rallied support and went from this small group of underdogs to ultimately the team that brought us to Pluto. So basically, it was just retracing that story along with these characters who've lived it. And a lot of it had to do with just bringing their voices and their memories in and focusing on uh, the human experience of um, this this struggle and this this winding path from you know really from Boulder, Colorado to the planet Pluto, which took twenty six years. Yeah, and this project started and stopped almost too many times to count, isn't that right, Alan? Oh, it sure did. It was uh, it was it was a pretty chaotic birth. Uh, but you know, uh, just the other day in in Los Angeles, uh, we were on this book tour. Uh, we were told, you know, this reads like a Michael Crichton novel, except it actually happened, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, it's it's unbelievable to me, having led the project, that we actually got this done. Uh, there were so many times it should have died. I, I say sometimes, you know, if if this mission had been a cat, it would have been dead long ago. Multiple nine lives, nine right? Lives. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the late 1990s, NASA asked for a proposal to go to Mars. And this time, instead of choosing a winner, NASA just simply pulled the plug because, you know, the, the NASA manager called the mission to Pluto, quote, dead, dead, dead. Uh, what happened? Did I say Mars? I apologize. I meant to say Pluto there. Well, Pluto is the new Mars, as we talk about in in the book, because uh, now that we know what Pluto's like, it's it's every bit as uh, interesting as Mars. Uh, but yeah, that was one of many times when uh, it seemed like a complete dead end. The story could have just been over. It should have been. But uh, basically, the people who had invested so much of uh, of their lives and and their dreams and, and ingenuity already, they weren't about to take no for an answer. So they basically just had to figure out another another way. And at that point, when, when it was declared dead, public support became a huge part of the story. And tens of thousands of letters poured into NASA uh, from this, this letter writing campaign to save the Pluto mission. And that's one theme that 
also winds in and out of the book is that the public loves Pluto and wanted to see Pluto explored. And then when ultimately New Horizons did get to Pluto, the public reaction was just tremendous. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Mission Director Alan Stern and planetary scientist David Grinspoon. Their book, Chasing New Horizons, tells the story of NASA's New Horizons mission to Pluto, which was run out of Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Alan, in the book, there are many times when a lot of people might have thrown in the towel. What kept you going? Well, fortunately, I was was supported by a strong team, and... Uh, the team was very highly motivated. The science was mouthwatering, but probably just as important was uh, the opportunity to do something, as I said a little earlier, larger than life, Hmm. to finish the first era of reconnaissance of our solar system, to check the box and actually go out all the way to the frontier of the solar system and explore the last of the planets known at the birth of the space age. I mean, Pluto was all question marks when I was a kid. We didn't know anything about it, even how many moons it had. And it turned out to be more and more interesting. And it we call it in the book because we called it during the project. This is the Everest of planetary exploration. David, you write that Alan went to, quote, war for this mission. Could New Horizons have launched without Alan Stern? Uh, you know, we would have eventually had a Pluto mission, we, humanity, we, the human race, because because that's what we do. But could we have made this particular opportunity to launch a spacecraft, which had to be launched by 2006, uh, in order to avoid the next long wait for Jupiter to be in the right position uh, to again fling a spacecraft in a reasonable amount of time from Earth to Pluto? Uh, I don't think we would have. I think, uh, you know, it's one of these stories where ultimately it's going to happen no matter who makes it happen. But because of a particular individual, it happens how it happens and when it happens very much in a particular way. And so Alan is very central to this effort. But it, but as he said, you know, it, and, and as he says many times, it's a team sport. So, you know, he this team had a really good coach uh, and a really good leader, but it was also an amazing team. And without that, the incredible persistence and effort of a, a, a large number of people, this would not have happened. Alan, in 2001, you got the call that New Horizons had been selected as the mission to Pluto. How did that feel? Oh, it felt incredibly uh, surreal because we were the underdog team, a David in a David and Goliath battle against uh, 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 teams that had much more experience than we did, but apparently not as good a proposal. There were five teams competing uh, for the chance to, uh, to build and fly NASA's one and only mission to explore Pluto. And uh, we came out on top. It was amazingly gratifying, but uh, quite surprising, frankly, that uh, that our team was selected. I, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that the space establishment, quote unquote, in this book is, is sometimes seen as kind of the bad guy. How hard was it to write about these struggles uh, getting to Pluto in a way that didn't burn bridges with NASA? Well, you know, uh, it, it wasn't hard because this was uh, what was going on in the 90s and the 2000s. It's ancient history. Uh, but it is history. It is what happened. Uh, you know, the establishment uh, within NASA and the, the way that we choose science missions today is uh, much, much more orderly and much better run than it was back then. But to be honest, you know, when, when, we're, when, we're, when we were writing this book, you know, we did have to balance in some cases. A lot of these people are still around and we wanted to – 
mostly we want to tell an honest story that reveals to people how space exploration really happens because we don't think it's a story that's ever been told before in this way. But we also, you know, have to be diplomatic. And one gratify- very gratifying thing that happened to Alan and I since the book came out a couple of weeks ago is that we got a really nice letter, uh, actually an email, that's the way letters happen these days, um, from one of the important NASA officials who's in the book a lot and whose role in the book is not always described as, you know, being a total good guy. It's a little bit ambiguous, his role at times. But he wrote to us and told us he loved the book and he loved being able to relive the history and he thought that we told it really well. And when we saw that, you know, we've gotten all kinds of great responses to the book. But hearing that response from somebody who was in it and who we had to be careful to try to portray honestly, that just made us feel really good. Ellen, let's talk about launch day 2006. New Horizons is finally on the launch pad in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The operations center goes around the room for the final sign-off. The launch director says, go, project manager, go. There is one person left, the principal investigator, that's you, and you say, no, go. Why? Yeah, that was uh, quite memorable. You know, the entire launch establishment was ready to go, and we had a rocket that was in perfect shape and a spacecraft that was uh, ready to go, and the weather was perfect down in Florida. But what had happened is that our mission control, which is in uh, Columbia, Maryland, uh, had uh, suffered a really bad problem overnight. A big storm had come through and knocked out power to the whole area. So mission control was running on backup power. And as you can imagine, the day that you launch your spacecraft, you might you might have problems. Uh, it's never been in space before. And so you want your mission control to be there as the catcher's met to be able to uh, save the day if anything's going wrong. And having mission control on not prime, but backup power with no backup to the backup seemed precarious to me. So uh, I stopped the launch. And, and so they had to kind of fix the problem and wait another day, right? Right. That was on a Tuesday that uh, that we did not fly, and uh, we recycled and uh, uh, got ready again, and we flew on Thursday, and flawlessly so. In 2015, New Horizons sails past Pluto and sends back pictures as clear as day, and you'd been dreaming of seeing Pluto close up for decades. What image made the most impact on you, Alan? <laughs> uh, that's very easy to answer. It's an image that we took uh, of Pluto backlit by the sun with Pluto's beautiful blue atmosphere shining at us. Uh, that picture was taken about four hours after the flyby, and it can only be taken uh, with Pluto backlit by the sun by being on the far side of Pluto. So for me, that was the, uh, the image that really said we did it. It was the equivalent of the Apollo astronauts, you know, seeing mo- Earth rise over the moon. Yeah. And by the way, that image is in the book in beautiful full color on a on a full page. So if you if you have a chance to uh, pick it up or you know walk into tattered cover and page through the book, uh, open it up to that page and you'll see what Alan's talking about. It's this ring of blue surrounding a black planet in the blackness of space, and it's it's just beautiful. It's riveting. Briefly, in many ways, this is a Colorado story. You, you, t- you started talking about it when you were a grad student at the University of Colorado in Boulder. The spacecraft was built here. You ran the project from here. You even named the mission while out for a run in Boulder. This is a Colorado story, right? It really is. It involves the University of Colorado and Ball Aerospace and Lockheed Martin down in Denver and many personalities in the, in the Boulder area. Uh, and so it's more than anything, uh, geographically, it's a Colorado story for sure. And both of us, Alan lives in, in Colorado, and I, I now live in Washington, D.C., but during almost the entire 
time this story was unfolding for most most of the last 20 years i've i've lived in colorado also i was at university of colorado i was at the southwest research institute and i was a curator at the denver museum of nature and science so we both have a very uh colorado focused view of this story uh so many of the main protagonists and uh, the main scenes um, are located in Colorado as well. And as it should be, you know, Colorado is a mile closer to space. (laughs) (laughs) That it is. Thanks to the both of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Alan Stern is the New Horizons mission leader. David Grinspoon is a planetary scientist and author. They'll be discussing their book, Chasing New Horizons, at the Boulder Bookstore Saturday evening and Denver's Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax on Sunday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Bishop Castle is a massive stone, glass, and wrought iron structure and the life work of Jim Bishop. It's a popular roadside attraction near Rye, Colorado. A recent fire destroyed the castle's gift shop, eliminating the only source of income for Jim and his wife, who are both getting older and struggling with health problems. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad visited the Bishop family to talk about the future. It's my first time seeing the place, so I hardly notice where the fire happened. Bishop Castle sits at a tight bend in the road in the mountains southwest of Pueblo. And when I drive up, Daniel Bishop is using a small bulldozer to clear debris from the spot where a fire destroyed the gift shop in late March. It could have been electrical. It could have been somebody camping out on the porch or started a campfire that got out of control. We don't know. It's really not all that important. The castle was unharmed. The bishops have a GoFundMe page to pay for a new gift shop, and they also have donation bins all over the property. Volunteers have also pitched in to clear the wreckage. And Jim Bishop, the castle builder himself, has not let age or infirmity stop him from rolling up his sleeves. Daniel says that's just who his dad is. I don't plan on working on anything until he's gone because he wants it to be a one-man project as long as he's alive. Right now, Daniel handles much of the upkeep, and Jim still helps out as he can. Daniel says he would like to complete his dad's plan for a wall around the perimeter of the castle, with vendor booths lining the inside of that wall. After that, maybe he can dream up some of his own additions to the place. There's enough work there that it would take two or three lifetimes to complete. And I'm already 45, so... I've only got so many years to get something done myself. What began in 1969 as a rock cottage eventually grew into the castle we sit in today. It's three stories tall. Stone steps lead from the first floor into a second floor hall with windows of stained glass. Each pane commemorating a birth, a death, a wedding anniversary. The list goes on. Upstairs is the grand ballroom, a bright and airy hall with hardwood floors and glass cathedral ceilings. From any of the parapets, there are stunning views of the surrounding forests. And Jim Bishop laid every stone by himself. That's what's wrong with the castle. All that hard work and that great monument I built, it's made everything else in life dull and boring. Jim is finishing up his dinner at his home in Pueblo. He points to the TV. There ain't, a, there ain't nothing worth looking at. Maybe a Rockies game. That's about it. Jim and his wife Phoebe are now both in their 70s. 
Jim was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease a few months ago. Not only is he still working as much as he can up at the castle, but he's trying to take care of Phoebe. He says he doesn't think he's doing a good job. Because she cooks, she's a good cook and I'm not. So she ends up cooking for me and she's dying of cancer. And she's in terrible pain. She's allergic to all pain medications. That's not even all of Phoebe's medical woes. When the gift shop burned down in March, the bishops lost their only reliable stream of income. Phoebe says when they got that early morning call from the fire department. It's like I was a hot air balloon, way 10,000 feet high. And all of a sudden there was no air in the balloon. And I was just there waiting for the total destruction of me. That's when their oldest son, Daniel, stepped in. And he's taken everything over. He's taken over my bills. He's taken over the castle. He's taken over everything so it doesn't stop. And they haven't stopped. Aside from the lack of a gift shop, everything at Bishop Castle has been business as usual. Daniel mends broken windows and welds where needed, and guests continue to have free roam of the place. And that's sort of how it's supposed to work. Jim Bishop says the castle was never for him or his family. It's for everyone else. Them walls, them buttresses, arches, towers, if there wasn't somebody to climb on them, be inspired by them, get married up there, and use them and have fun screaming and hollering and climbing, there'd be no point in doing it. it. It'd be like the noise in the forest. Did it really happen? Was there a noise? Well, yes, there was, but how can you prove it? Well, the castle's its own proof, but I don't need it. I don't need any of them towers or nothing. That is there because I, sh- I was showing off to her to start with. Now I'm still showing off to her whether she knows it or not. <laughs> and Jim says he'll keep showing off until he can't. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. And now a story of how a library changed the life of a homeless woman. My life was a series of picking bad people. And I would start getting on my feet, and I'd start doing better, and boom, there I was in a shelter again. Mandy Brown first went to Pueblo's main library because she wanted to escape the heat. She knew the building was air-conditioned. Then, she says, even though she was so intimidated by technology she couldn't even stand next to a computer, the staff got her to try a computer class. Once Brown had some basic skills, a librarian suggested places she could apply for work. And I was like, they think I can hold down a job? And then one day somebody brought up school and they said, well, you're going to go and go to PCC, aren't you? PCC is Pueblo Community College. I mean, I looked at them like, you've got to be crazy. And the next time I came in, I wanted them to be proud of me. And they were. She says it's because of the library staff that she enrolled in the nursing program at PCC. Now Brown has her own apartment. They believed in me, and so it made me start believing in me. Because of work like this, Pueblo's libraries are getting the 2018 National Medal for Museum and Library Services. It's one of only 10 winners. And Mandy Brown is headed to Washington, D.C. next week for the award ceremony. Meanwhile, Pueblo also won Best Library in the Nation in an online vote. If you're a fan of British royalty or of Cinderella stories, tomorrow is a big day. American Meghan Markle will step out of a car, show off the wedding gown everybody's been waiting to see, and walk down the aisle to marry Prince Harry. 
In Colorado, Ian Thompson will be watching for details no amateur is likely to see. As a staff member at Westminster Abbey in 2011, Thompson was on the altar when Prince William married Kate Middleton. He spoke to my colleague Ryan Warner last year. Ian, welcome. Hello. Uh, I understand that your view of William's wedding was better than the Queen's. Where were you in the Abbey? What could you see? Yeah, I was actually up at the uh, the high altar at the Abbey. So because I was looking after the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London during the wedding, I was able to get a seat up at the high altar. So we actually got to see actually the faces of Prince William and Kate. So we actually got to see them do their wedding vows should we say, you know, face to face and the Queen and all the members of the royal family, they were sitting on the floor. So all they could see was the back of their heads. So it was great. I actually got one up on the Queen. Uh, Your title at the Abbey was Verger, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, tell us what that meant, especially on that particular day. You say you were helping the Archbishop. Sure. So um, in England, in any cathedral, there's always a team of vergers and there's vergers in the Episcopal Church as well. So basically, uh, the vergers are part of a liturgical team who help with the preparation for all the services. But the most important role for a verger um, is actually we lead the procession. So we're responsible for making sure that people get to where they're supposed to be at the right time. They get to the right seats and everything and to lead them out at the end. It's a fancy term in a way for usher. Basically, Basically, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the most important thing for us is is the actual procession to make sure that whoever we're looking after, we're responsible for. This really is like putting on a show. It is. I mean, like we're the stage manage, managers and everything. And um, yeah, so it is like putting on a show. Was this a big deal for you? or it, Or do other people make more of this than you do? People have actually asked me many, many times, you know, were you nervous or were you anxious about being on there the raw day? And I'm not being big headed, but for me and for the Abbey, it was just like a normal day for us. Um, I've taken part in many big services, royal and national services. You know, I've been on live on television before. Um, So the royal wedding, even though it was amazing for me, it was just like a regular day. But I have to assume that there were more eyeballs on you for that than those previous events, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a global audience watches these things. Yes. And when we were actually doing the service and where I was sitting, um, you kind of had to kind of blank that out Uh in your mind. You had to just forget how many people were watching you, even though you were very well aware the cameras were on you. So... I was being very aware not to scratch my head or pick my nose or anything like that. Um, But it was one of those things, you know, it was a job that you had to do. People were, you know, expecting you to be responsible. People, you know, were, shall we say, you know, I'm trying to think of the right words. Well, just lots of expectations on good behavior and and making sure that every hair is in place. Yeah, absolutely. And and so because you led them in, part of that procession. Yeah. You ended up watching from the altar. And what was it like the moment that uh, Prince William and Kate Middleton, now the Duchess of Cambridge, took their vows? What stands out? I think one of the amazing things that stood out is we knew, first of all, you know, there was a lot of people watching us. We knew before, of course, that most of the big parks in London were having big screens so people could watch it in the parks. Right. And 20 million people watching in the U.S. I I mean, it was incredible. But the main thing for us is that... Um, when they were doing the vows and William said, like the first, you know, I will, I do, 
where there was a pause and you could actually then hear the noise of the crowd from outside screaming and cheering. So everybody in the Abbey, we were just kind of smiling. The members of the royal family were smiling as well. It was just a great occasion because you realize that even though you had like 1,900 people in the Abbey, it was at that point that it hit you. This this is a national and global affair. This is a national thing. The fact that, you know, what you're doing here, even though people can't always see it, you knew what was happening outside. It was was just incredible. That was one of the biggest things that stood out. How did you find out that uh, the Abbey was where the ceremony would take place? Because there there are lots of options, right, for a royal wedding? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I mean, when, like usually, a royal wedding is announced... Um, there's kind of like the two big ones they think, first of all, perhaps like Westminster Abbey and perhaps St. George's Chapel, Windsor. The main thing you have to realize in England, there are certain churches which are known as a raw peculiar. I mean, trust us British to have the word peculiar in, you know, a title. Um, but basically, raw peculiars are churches that come under the jurisdiction of only one person, the sovereign. So because it is like a royal place of worship, uh, those are kind of what you people would expect that's going to happen. And they're peculiar because they're different. They're set apart. Exactly. Okay. Even though raw peculiars, should we say, are still part of the Church of England, um, the difference is, is that a raw peculiar and the Archbishop of Canterbury or any bishop doesn't have any jurisdiction over them. It is the sovereign's church. And once you found out that it would be the abbey, I imagine work began immediately. For us at the abbey, no. No, um, okay. no it's so no. commonplace. No, it, it's, I mean, the amazing thing was is that, again, people say, you know, when you found out you had yeah. the royal wedding, um, you know, was that all you could think of? And of course, it wasn't because, you know, the royal wedding was going to take place on Friday, the 29th of April. And that year in 2011, Easter fell on April the 24th. So we have a royal wedding the week after Easter. So we couldn't really think much about it because we had the whole of Holy Week. We had Easter. And the other big thing that came up is that uh, in England, there is the Royal Monday service where the sovereign gives out special coins to people in the community. Westminster Abbey gets it every 10 years. And would you believe it that the 10th year that the Abbey gets it was the year of the royal wedding? The royal wedding. So mm. not only did we have Easter, we had the royal Monday service with members of the royal family. And here's the best bit. Not only was it the 10th year for the royal Monday service at the Abbey, because it happened on the 21st of April, that's the actual official birthday of the Queen. And because she was 85 <laughs> that year, they also decided, let's broadcast it live. So we got Holy Week, another broadcast, plus the royal wedding. The royal wedding, pshaw. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just going back into uh, some royal wedding history here. Sure. Where things have not gone exactly as planned. Uh, I remember, for instance, that Princess Diana, when she said her vows, mixed up Prince Charles's name and said uh-huh. Prince Charles Philip Arthur George. She called him Philip Charles Arthur George and s- switched the names around. Did anything go uh, just a little bit wrong for uh, the royal wedding that you witnessed? Sure. Again, McKay? this is a question that people do do ask me, and it's I and I tell them the absolute nothing from our side went wrong. Because of the number of her- rehearsals we did the day before. Are the royals at the rehearsals? No, they usually like stands in. So, okay. of course, at the end, obviously, they would go back and brief everybody. And, you know, I can't speak for Will and Kate, but obviously they had a rehearsal at some point on their own. 
But for us, because of the number of rehearsals we did the day before, everybody was fine. Everybody was great. Everybody knew what was going on. And they're used to pomp and circumstance and standing in a certain place and then moving to another. How did your family feel about you being a part of a of a wedding, a royal wedding, your parents, your girlfriend, maybe? Uh, at that point, it was my fiancé and my parents. Well, I mean, everybody in my family was just glued to the screen. Um, I mean, working at the Abbey, my family knew that, you know, I've done a, I used to help with a lot of big royal services. So, like, seeing members of the royal family at the Abbey was nothing new. But this was like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know, a royal wedding like this only comes once in a lifetime. And you were a fiancé at the time? Yeah. And then um, how quickly did the, the your own wedding come, your own uh, royal wedding? We actually got married in May 2012. Uh, we actually got engaged in the Abbey uh, a couple of weeks before the royal wedding. Um, I actually took her into the Abbey all on, you know, when there was nobody there. Um, we went up to the high altar. Uh, I went down on one knee, asked her to marry me. So that we actually got mar- um, engaged upon like the area where Will and Kate got married. So we got there first. You got there first. We, we got there first. Trying to upstage them, I see. Absolutely. Ian, thanks so much for talking to us. You're very welcome. Did you, By the way, did you get to eat their wedding cake? No. So at, okay. the, so at the very uh, end, uh, we actually, everybody who took part got a, a lovely little tin box with a piece of the wedding cake. People say to me, did I eat it? No, that's my pension. Britain's Prince Harry will marry American Meghan Markle tomorrow morning at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle outside London. Ian Thompson participated in the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton in 2011. He's now a sacristan, a job similar to the one he held in England at St. John's Episcopal Cathedral in Denver. Finally today, Elephant Revival has been turning heads for more than a decade through elaborate live performances and a half dozen albums. The Netherlands band has become a staple on the folk bluegrass circuit. Earlier this year, the group shocked fans with a statement announcing an indefinite hiatus, citing family members. Their family matters, rather. Their final performance is Sunday as they headline Red Rocks. Ryan Warner spoke with members Bonnie Payne and Danny Rodriguez in 2016 following the release of their album Petals. Did you guys imagine back in 06 that you'd still be playing together these many years later? Yeah, it was pretty clear for me. <laughs> I didn't know, but I, I knew that we would be friends for most likely life. But I didn't know that we'd still be traveling the country together. Bonnie, that's so optimistic. I just feel like I, don't, I can't say what the next year of my life will be. Yeah. How, where did the certainty come from that in, in a decade you'd still be together as Elephant Revival? Well, I can't say that I was 100% certain. You never know with anybody. But I felt like with, um, with the music having the feeling of momentum that it had for me, like with, with Dan's songs particularly, like I felt a place in them instantly and like with you know each of the band members if something was conflictual or something that we needed to grow through there was just an overall willingness to grow no one said this would be easy now but you gotta keep moving somehow Drifting round 
river bound Someone say to me one day Head on down to the waters and stay a while Go down to the soul of the river Go where love found you there Feel deep down them goosebumps and shivers Go where the mouth of the river runs wide And don't push that river, let the river move you along Home in your heart and there's heart in your home Don't force nothing and something will come around Light as a feather when you're homeward bound Home in Your Heart by the Netherlands folk outfit Elephant Revival. Their final performance is Sunday at Red Rocks. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Shameful regret You set your sails and move full speed ahead Don't push that river Let the river move you along Home in your heart And there's heart in your home Don't force nothing And something come around Light as a feather When you're homeward bound Light as a feather